Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Today's guest is Megan Carlisle to discuss a wide variety of topics from permaculture to cleaning our toxic messes and lots of other things in between. Her recent experiences are as a farm manager with an intern program to teach young people about permaculture farming and creating farm to table programs. And she has most recently created a permaculture curriculum in Ecuador to help local people clean up the toxic messes left behind by the US oil companies. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jane. I just thought that your experience in Ecuador was the most exciting. Can we start with that? Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about it. I just spent six months in a town in Ecuador called Lago Agrio. It was named after Sour Lake, Texas, which is Texaco's headquarters in Texas. Lago Agrio was uh, founded in 1964 when they found oil in the Ecuadorian Amazon. It was all primary untouched rainforest before that. For about 30 years, they drilled and made roads and, in general, wreaked some havoc into indigenous territories. And because it was kind of the Wild West at the time and there were no environmental regulations and nobody watching what they did, when they would dig a new oil well, they would just dig a giant wastewater pit right next to it. And in countries with regulations, you have to re-inject the wastewater from the formation water when you crack into the earth, but instead they would just put it all into this giant pit and then they would open up the valves and see how what the flow rate was for 24 hours. And so they just pour crude oil onto the ground for 24 hours. The legacy that they left behind is over 800 of these, some multiple Olympic sized swimming pool, dirt unlined pits in the jungle. When they did this, they didn't tell the indigenous it was dangerous. People actually, um, you know, would play in the oil when it first came because they were all convinced they were going to get rich. It wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s that they started putting the connections between the cancer rates and the oil contamination. So for many years, they didn't even know that it was dangerous. People were just getting sick and they didn't know why. So when they finally figured it out, they formed a class action lawsuit. Who formed the class action suit? The indigenous people. The, the well, the the local community. So it's a indigenous and uh, mestizo, which are like the like the local people that have moved in now. You know, at a colonized towns and stuff in the Amazon. But it was like everyone affected by the cancer and all of these problems created by the oil companies. It became a thirty thousand person class action lawsuit against Texaco, which became Chevron over that time period, and spent, I think it was 20 years of the lawsuit. And I think in 2009, they got a settlement in Ecuador for $9.5 billion. Billion. Billion dollars. $9.5 billion to be paid to the 30,000 class action lawsuit, people in the lawsuit. And uh, Chevron refused to pay. So they uh, left, they could no longer operate in Ecuador. And the oil production went over to the Ecuadorian government. 
they got charged $9.5 billion, but they never paid a dime. And then the lawsuit continued to chase them around the world, fought them in New York, Canada, and the Netherlands, and lost the next three lawsuits on their, you know, on the, the oil company's home turf. I'm surprised uh, they would lose it in, in the Netherlands. I think the one, actually, the one in the Netherlands was the, um, like, International Trade Court. Oh. So it's it's like in the Netherlands, but it's the court of the big industry, as it were. Oh, okay. um, so anyway, they this huge community of people who have come together to take, you know, this David and Goliath story, they finally came to the conclusion that we could fight our whole lives and we're never going to get a dime out of these guys. So now what? And they came together and formed an environmental reparations committee and a health reparations committee and got the people of the lawsuit together to form action committees of like, how are we going to solve these problems of our community ourselves? And the first thing the Environmental Reparations Committee voted to do was to form an educational program. And that's what I did while I was in Ecuador was help write an educational curriculum for a eight-day course called Guardians of the Soil, Permaculture-Based Bioremediation, which is, we'll get into in a second. I spent six months there working on creating this curriculum, and before the shutdown, it was being taught to 180 people who were then going to be empowered to give them all of the course materials to teach the course themselves. But you don't speak Spanish, so you just wrote the course and someone translated it? I wrote the course with a woman named Lexi Gropper, who runs the remediation restoration farm in Ecuador called Amisacho, amisacho amisacho.com. And we, uh, we lived together and wrote the course together, and she translated it into Spanish and was teaching it in Spanish. Let's maybe talk a little bit about what bioremediation is. So bioremediation is the use of plants, bacteria, and fungi to help break down toxins or stabilize toxins to be able to uh, either render them safe or uh, to remove them entirely. Some of the ways that's done is through plants can extract, they can uptake certain toxins into their plant matter. You can take those away and compost them and process them further. There's um, bacteria can actually consume and mushrooms can actually consume the toxins themselves. And in general, bioremediation is a lot more approachable for grassroots applications than um, a regular or corporate remediation, as it were, it often sprays chemicals on the chemicals to break them down. Oh. Yes. Plus, it's less expensive, I guess, to do it that way. Yes. Yes, it's less expensive. And, and ultimately, the scale of the problem is so large that uh, many of the solutions that have been offered are not accessible to the people who need them, who are living in extreme poverty. I didn't mention the statistic, but the if the people who live within a thousand feet of these oil wells, which is which uh, the oil pump jacks in this area are right in the middle of town because that's where the roads are. If you live in a thousand feet, the cancer rates are one in four. And so they call it the Chernobyl of South America, some of the uh, highest cancer rates in the world. What did you say they call it? The Chernobyl of oh. South America, like just the big contaminated region that is uh, so hard hit that many people choose not to go there. This was definitely not the pina coladas on the beach version of Ecuador. <laughs> Wow. Mm. This was the gas flares off in the jungle and oil pits. And we saw active oil spills and everyone that's in the town is oil workers. It's definitely, it's like the Texas of Ecuador. 
uh, Texas of the Amazon. Wow. If you could get your courses back up online, how long might it take to clean up the land? The course is about starting in the home. So really about first and foremost, making sure that people are safe and that the food they are eating and the water they are drinking is clean. Mm. Um, And so the course is designed to start people off with home scale projects and to assess their land and their contamination risk to try to mitigate their crops being contaminated and their, you know, to begin to clean up things that are happening on a home scale. And a lot of that is about building skills and being able to teach them the base concepts so that they can come up with local solutions because they understand the flora and fauna and how water and soil and all of those things move in their landscape, but they just don't understand the principles of remediation. There's no uh, ancient techniques to oil cleanup in their histories. Um, Yeah, and each farm is different. I mean, could be different. A lot of the permaculture perspective is about place-based approaches to design. So then once people get the idea of cleaning up their own farm, then what? So there's this bigger reparations committee and the idea with the course was to spend the time in the course creating home-based projects and then as the course was coming to a close, develop the long-term strategy between them. And so what the next steps after that were largely designed to be community-driven. So we don't have a what the next step is. We are te- giving them the tools in their toolbox to make those decisions for themselves. Maybe the next step is organizing with their local government. Maybe it's setting up localized composting. Maybe it's propagating plants. Maybe it's just teaching more things. Maybe it's teaching in schools. Like there is so much base learning that you need to do to be able to even start in the process of building healthy soil and building, uh, how do you spread that out to build healthy communities? So now with the coronavirus, the uh, pandemic, um, all that's on hold, right? Yeah. I mean, the whole world just hit the pause button. So that included us. And we're, and a lot of those communities are also, uh, a lot of the indigenous communities in those regions are starting to isolate from the rest of the world as well. So it's, creating new challenges of how do we meet in person to, to create this information. But, you know, I think all the whole world's going through those challenges together. So what comes out on the other side might be brand new. Wow. Well, you were one of the first ones I knew of that um, realized that the virus was potentially pandemic in nature. I mean, back in December, January, you were... I started, I started following it probably early January when the hospitals started filling up in China. It quickly went from being a dinner table conversation to trips to get bags of rice. So we had our family locked down several weeks before everybody else. And when we started locking down, people said we were crazy because it was just media hype. And now look at us. Yeah. Okay, so here we are, um, most of us in, uh, in sequestered conditions. So what do you recommend, given your global uh, view or nature of this and how we're all interconnected, what can we do? What do you recommend? Well, I think the world's being offered this opportunity to really go within and have some time of stillness to think about the world we want to create on the other side you know it's just, it's almost like we're going into this chrysalis and everything's melting back into the primordial goo and we get to recreate the world we want to 
have on the other side. And, you know, if you had told me four months ago, especially after my experience in Ecuador, that global oil production would basically cease, I would have called you a liar because it just seems like this juggernaut would never end. And we have a glut of oil. (laughs) Yeah. Now we have more, you know, that now they're shutting down tanks and pipelines because we're just not using it. And I think that while the reasons for that are horrifying, the result for many is their life has slowed down and they are seeing that the system that they are giving their lives for, you know, that we spend every waking moment supporting is not, is fragile and not there to support them. It's there to make sure that the rich stay rich. So I think we are being given this time to be able to think about some of those things and to figure out how we want to walk in the world afterwards. You know, uh, before I left for this region of Ecuador, we found out that all of the oil being produced there was being processed in the Richmond refinery in the Bay Area. And that all of that, a lot of that oil was being used for the trucking industry up and down the West Coast. So everything in every store that almost everyone I know uses was being brought to you by oil from the Amazon that was hurting people. And I think that that's true about almost everything that was on those trucks too, is hurting somebody somewhere. And then we come to this, this emotional realization that some people are finding that they're actually at more peace without all of that stuff. They're finding inner peace now that they can't have everything they've ever been sold. They're going back to reading books and playing the piano and baking bread and the simple things in life are bringing them more joy than they had before. And that's not to downplay the anxiety and the, the emotional things of the virus and money worries and losing jobs and, and mortgages to pay and stuff like that. It's not just a, everybody's home baking bread. In fact, I'm sure there's a, some level of privilege to being able to have a sourdough starter at all. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that um, getting to really say, what is it that makes me happy? And is this constant drive for more and the constant need to see and do what everyone else has seen and done maybe isn't serving the planet. It's definitely not serving the planet. Here we are just staying home was the solution the whole time to global, at least to global oil production and, and carbon dioxide. It's like, let's just slow down. So mother nature is giving us a time out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And what lessons are we going to learn from that? I mean, you know, I think that whether you believe that this is part of some grand plan or not, I mean, we are being given an opportunity, you know, this is almost like the practice round for climate change because we have all these dire, the world's going to fall apart predictions in our news. And yet we're finding ways to, to come to more peace within ourselves and to maybe realize that we didn't need everything that we were doing. I just, I just think that we couldn't pull the plug. We were on a, a treadmill or something and nobody could stop it. It was just like we were all on it together and you, you could say, oh my God, this is going way too fast. But no individual, no nation could stop it. We're all too interconnected. There is getting to be these, these introspective moments about the American, I mean, America quickly has become the epicenter of this problem. And I think that in the spotlight globally right now is the uh, efficacy of that every man for himself mentality. And there's really a inward or not, maybe not inward, but like there's a self-satisfaction motivation within American culture. 
what we need to be making decisions for is for the collective. So you're staying home, not just to keep yourself safe, but to keep others safe as well. And that's kind of a new, to, to live, to make lifestyle choices based on things that can affect other people is what we're being called to do for the environment. It's I'm being, cho- I, the choices that I make in the grocery store affect other people, but I never have to see those people. I never have to like live with the consequences of my actions. Other people are living with those consequences. So the uh, collective group of people marching against uh, the lockdown and the masses of people going to the beach and stuff, it's like we're up against a value in our country that we don't have to look out for each other. So- right, and that, and that really what matters most is that I get to go to Applebee's or whether I get to do what I want. And it's very me, me, me focused. And the truth is, is that your actions affect other people. I think one of my favorite concepts of this was my friend Elijah, who I heard you're going to have on as well this month, was giving a talk. And he said that this proves just this virus is proving just how connected we all are that shaking hands and breathing the same air has transferred something to almost every corner of the planet in such a short amount of time shows how interconnected we actually are, that every single piece of this puzzle is related to every other piece. And so much of our consumer lifestyle is based on not having to see the effects of our actions in other places. You know, what's happening in the Amazon and Ecuador is happening in America, it's happening all over the world, the the environment is being destroyed and communities are being destroyed and are getting sick because of things that are being made to fulfill our every whim. So you, okay, so it's not just in the Amazon that there is toxicity. You're talking about toxicity in the U.S. Like, can you, can you give some examples of that? Well, it's, it, it's almost, I, I, I will, I will warn people who get intrigued about this because toxins are a, pretty emotional can of worms to study and it was not psychologically easy for me to dive super deeply into the subject of permaculture is my background and the person I was working with has a bioremediation background so we were kind of combining permaculture and bioremediation but toxins are everywhere I mean toxins are in the air they're in our food they're in they're coating our products they're on our couches they're paint. I mean, it's like, it's literally everywhere. And, and America had hundreds of years of industrialization and toxic sites before, before the regulations kicked in, which are not necessarily all that stringent or all that enforced, even before Trump. Now with the EPA being sort of... Mantled and, and, and mercury testing being suspended. But now we have exported a lot of those, now those industries, because they cannot operate here, are just operating in other countries that don't have those regulations. Mercury being a good example, mercury is used to uh, separate gold. It is used in the process of refining gold. And so there's a, almost like a toxic legacy behind all wealth worldwide. You know, the, the history of money and how money became this thing has had left um, toxic exposure behind it. And so still is. Many so people gold mining around the world are still not being responsible with their mercury. So it's not just a metaphor. It's an actual um, part of the process of reflection. Yes. Oh, mm. Wow. But it's a good metaphor. Yes. And I think that, so yeah, to- toxins are all around the world. Certain things like a, 
the toxin that's in Teflon. I used to think that it was just hippies making up that Teflon was bad for you, but then there's a really amazing documentary called The Devil We Know um, that goes into the history of Teflon, which was uh, based in, I um, believe, Virginia, but I could be wrong. The toxin in Teflon is so small, it's a nanoparticle, it, can it cannot be contained by cement, it, it finds its way between almost all containers. It can't be, you know, you can't have a cup of it, it will actually seep through almost any vessel because it is so small. And it has made its way into the ecosystem and it gets, it's so tiny that it gets picked up by the evaporation and it is now in the rain cycle. And almost every single human being on earth has tested to have this toxin in their blood. Wow. So the toxin from Teflon pans is now in the rain in remote places where they've never seen a Teflon pan in their life. Mm -hmm. Those people have it in their body. And when they finally got caught and tried for the fact that they knowingly were releasing a toxin that causes cancer and uh, birth defects and all of that to the public, I think they got charged, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it was $23 million. I don't know what the, the cost of uh, contaminating every the blood of every single person on earth with a toxin is, but I'm pretty sure it's more than $23 million. <laughs> oh my God. And I think they first found that people working in the Teflon plants were uh, getting sick and then yeah. expanded from there. Yes, and, and, and all across the world, we have a, a long history of cover-ups about those, you know, that they, they knew it was wrong and they did it anyway, is so much the, the problems of industry. So talk um, about news cover-up or fake news or, or trying to um, dissemble the truth. Wow, Mother Nature giving us a time out is really... Yeah, we deserve it. <laughs> the more you learn, the more you're like, yeah, we probably deserve that. And unfortunately, the poor do not deserve it. The people who I think are going to be in the long run the most affected by the coronavirus are also the ones being most affected, also have these, what they're calling the comorbidities. They have diabetes, they have heart disease, they have, uh, you know, they have bad lungs from being exposed to pesticides. They have a lot of the things that make them susceptible to being injured by the virus, I think are also because of this industrialized world we're living in. As a climate activist, that while all of that stuff is very scary and very heavy, that in some ways we're being, the big wake up call is now. I mean, it might be too late now, but it's we're very close to those tipping points that make it, you know, we have to change our ways or a lot bigger consequences than this that affect a lot more than just humans. Yeah, um, I think this time out is like we're we're just about to go over the precipice and there and, and we're pulling ourselves back for a quick relook. Is this yeah. really where we want to go? Yeah, I mean, how many species had to go extinct and nobody cared? You know, or or the people gave a passing thought to entire species are can't exist ever again. Um, but now it's affecting humans, so we're waking up. Um, and maybe, we, you know, they the people jumped up and down for decades trying to warn us that things were not going in a good direction. Okay, so Megan, you've got some resources that people can, can uh, study or look at to, I mean, where do we go from here to actually rethink our world? Um, I was going to earlier... I use this word permaculture, and maybe it's something people have heard about, maybe it's something they haven't. Um, but permaculture is a design system to try to create permanent culture, which is the idea of creating systems that have long, uh, renewable and long-term longevity. And so it's a 
kind of a combination of folk wisdom and analytical observation. So uh, trying to observe the world we're in and create a design that is self-sustaining. Um, and most often the word permaculture is related to kind of a different vision for how land management or gardening goes, but it also goes to community systems and how houses are built and how energy is used. It's a whole systems design system. If we're trying to take a step back and look at how we're going to fix these problems, I think we need to observe a little bit better how the world works and to try to use systems and technology that are local, that are simple machines. We used to use water and um, wind to move things all over the place. Wind turbines and water turbines were how most of the industrial revolution was started, but we barely use some of those things anymore. I mean, I guess wind, those are kind of on the rise with renewable energy, but it's almost like we had renewable resources and then gasoline came along and everyone just forgot all of the ways that the world worked before that. (laughs) Yes. And so it's about observation. It's about education. And uh, and I think we're learning the lesson that it's about just slowing down, uh, having having simple things be enough. Reading a book, camping, going to places locally, having dinner with your friends. These are truly the what matters most in life. And I think now that we can't have dinner with our friends, we're we're realizing how much we miss it. <laughs> but I think it's those simple things in life. It's like finding a way to slow down. Is uh, a huge piece of this puzzle, and I think the the the, the proof is in the pudding that these the, the skies are clearing in LA and Beijing, and the rivers are clearing in Italy, and the animals are returning to the system because people are just staying home. You know, I'm pretty sure nobody wants to hear. Well, the solution to all this is to stay home more after coronavirus is done. But I think it is those living, finding the pleasures and the simple things in life, and growing a garden, and and being more resilient, and focusing on. Like, you know, before this pandemic hit, almost all of my young friends had less than three days worth of food in their house. They had so much faith that the system that had always supported them was always going to be there because there was never a moment that it had faltered. There was always food in the grocery store. There was always everything they needed. And, you know, here we are, like, the big wake-up call was running out of toilet paper or... or, (laughs) You know, the one, like, we can't buy X, Y, like, there being empty shelves at all was traumatic, and I'm 33. You know, I I have people in my life who their entire adult life has never had any blip in their functionality of the system whatsoever, and so I think that's important for people to take a little of their own resiliency back into their own hands. Mm. So do you have any other recommendations other than to slow down? I mean, any resources that people might want to um, to tap into? I think that um, uh, studying permaculture, I, I learned a shameful amount of what I know from YouTube um, just by kind of obsessively learning more and being able to see. I'm a visual learner, so seeing how other people do it. I think um, being aware of toxins and i wish i could give you know a more in-depth how to do that you know how to remediate but it's it's maybe a longer-winded conversation maybe uh, i often find people you know start snoring when i start getting too far into it. <laughs> so, um, <yeah>. yes <laughs> um yeah polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons don't just like turn people's crank these yeah. days <laughs> um but I think I'm 
all of what I've learned has come down to building healthy soil and building healthy soil is about keeping carbon uh, in the cycle, not just burning and raking leaves and pulling all of the organic matter away. It's composting, it's learning how to mimic nature, to plant fruit trees, to plant things that are have a longer term payoff. I think, you know, we're having a hard time seeing two weeks in the future these days, but but how do we create a world for our grandchildren is is what's needed. And growing, I'm just so grateful to see everybody growing gardens. There's there's a explosion in garden growing. And I think that many people will have a extreme lessons in all of that. I think a life-changing moment in my life was the first time I planted carrot seeds and ate them when I harvested them. It totally changed my the course of my life. Earth can te- watching seeds germinate is profound in a way that nobody can teach you about in a book. There's nothing you can, there's nothing that replicates it. Uh, Watching us like planting a seed and coming back and watch it germinate is just purely joyful. And it is profound. Um, And the process of continuing to, you know, it was profound the first time I saved that planted those carrot seeds and ate them. But even more profound is the years after that, where I've saved the seeds from those carrots and grown them again, you know, and, and had, I have a, a corn project. I've been with my husband. We've been breeding red corn and blue corn together. And now we have purple corn that we've bred between the red corn and the blue corn for five years so that I get to plant this summer. Those relationships with that ear of corn is, is so much more profound than I could, than people can understand until they do it. Oh, so, so I, I get a sense of, of love, of back and forth between you, you two and the plants and and I, you know, for me, anything to spice up rice and beans <laughs> that we <we're gonna> eat. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and that that love and the wonder of nature. I mean, I I feel so um, heartbroken how unconnected children are these days from the power and potency of the natural world, and how unbelievably amazing it is, and how uh, while you know, some of my dear friends that I've had to teach about all of these natural systems and the wonder and beauty of the world, I call it the green coming into focus, is watching their eyes light up to the plants around them. And, you know, the first time they identify a plant in the grass, and then now it's like, oh my God, did you know plantain is everywhere? You know, like they see it, they start seeing this world that they never paid attention to come into focus. And I think that awareness is so beautiful and so spiritually and mentally potent and it just heartbreak it's heartbreaking to me that that isn't even available to many children Uh, not only are they not choosing to be a part of it but they're they don't even have an option you know they live in the concrete strip mall world and they never get to see the beauty and potency of nature i was watching a a video today uh, of someone talking about you can grow things in tiny boxes you can in your window you don't have to be outside you can do it on your on your patio or in your in your window on on your deck and you know you don't need much you do not need much space to do it that these vertical hydroponic gardens give you lettuce and uh, yep. peppers and all kinds of tomatoes do sprouts in a jar on your counter even if you don't have good light. You know, you can be uh, consuming fresh food seven days after you start. <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the instant gratification. Maybe millennials should start with sprouts. 
and then move their way <laughs> microgreens. <laughs> I would say, you know, maybe, you know, work your way up to fruit trees when you plant something that you're not going to eat from for five years. It seems like a, an eternity for most of my young friends. Five years. <laughs> <laughs> but if you watch it grow for five years, after that fruit tastes better after you watched it grow for five years and fertilized it and watered it and, and made sure other deer didn't eat it. So Megan, in the last couple minutes before we have to end, what final comments or points would you like to make? Um, I, I want to say that I do, I do have a lot of hope for the world. Um, as as over-informed and in some ways heartbroken at the state of things as I am, I think that humans are incredibly potent. I think they are supposed to be here and uh, have a much, uh, you know, all of, ag you know, all of agriculture is like 10,000 years, all of uh, government, arguably about 6,000 years old. Well, we have, you know, 80,000 years, 100,000 years of human history of living in harmony with the world. And that process of globalization or colonization or whatever it was, we really have, you know, up until about 500 years ago, things were pretty well in balance. We have a much longer history of living in balance than we do out of balance. And I think that the hope is of of being able to return to those things and I, I think the growing pains are not going to be easy but let's keep our eyes on where we want to be not just try to wait for our leaders to do it for us we it's every every person has the ability to make decisions to work for the common good hmm. well as we pass the baton to the younger generation and you step forward in the fullness of your of your leadership, I am just very grateful that you're that you're here and thinking deeply and widely. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you guys for uh, bringing us into this world and bringing us uh, bringing us all under perspective. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you don't miss any of our shows, make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.